Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Pro Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, brought to you by the Justice Brothers, and brought to you by my English brother, Graham Goodwin. How are you, my friend? Uh, absolutely great. Uh, just uh, looking forward to what could be a rather snowy WEC race at Spa next weekend. I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, as folks might hear, there's a brand new microphone in the Goodwin household. So hopefully uh, it'll be a friendlier friend. So there we go. <laughs> All right, brother, for those who are listening for the first time, this is our week in sports car show where we dance around IMSA, World Endurance Championship, SRO-based competition, ACO, you name it. Give ourselves about 90 minutes per episode. It's 100% driven by you, dear listeners, and the questions we ask you to send in each week on social media. So through Twitter, through Facebook, and through Reddit, we have almost 50 questions this week. And since you are the official chooser of topics, Mr. Goodwin, where shall we start first? Well, I think um, I think looking down this list, uh, MP, I think you'd agree that the Weck Aslam's Elms Echo uh, section rather dominates numerically. Let's let's rip through the IMSA questions uh, so we can give the uh, the good folks uh, in France land uh, plenty of a, uh, plenty of a go in terms of the interest we've got from around the world in what's going on in their world. So let's kick off with the US of A. Well, first one comes from David Harvey on Facebook. David, hello. Um, trivia question to settle what's less of an argument than a polite English disagreement. So bar fight then. Uh, I'm convinced the WTA Cadillac ran in satin matte black at the Rolex in 2017, changing to gloss black from Sebring onwards. Am I right? You are right in the fact that you are wrong, dear David. Unfortunately, I just took a look at some photos of the car from 2017 at Daytona that I captured, and it was indeed done with a gloss finish, not matte. But after by the end of the race with so much dirt and muck and oh, whatnot yeah. on it, Graham, it could easily have been mistaken for being matte because, yeah, it, she wasn't super shiny, but there were still a few spots that had yet to be covered by ick and ugh and bleh. So, sorry, unfortunately, or but maybe, who knows, maybe you were, uh, maybe there was money that you bet on being wrong. And if you bet money on being wrong, then you're right, and you should collect, and we'll just take 10%. Spot on, absolutely. There was the 17 car, did run a very similar all-black livery. That was the Rebellion car. Um, and that did run, uh, possibly in the test, in a kind of all-carbon math finish. But certainly, you're absolutely right. Uh, Delara was shiny, shiny. Um, next question comes from uh, one of our regulars, Nate Detweiler from Facebook. Hi, Nate. Is the WeatherTech Sprint Championship in uh, IMSA, a standalone championship, entries must declare they're running for the full season or sprint, or are all GTD entries automatically entered in it, like Indy's Oval and Road Street champions within the overall championship? To my knowledge, and I could be completely wrong, but to my knowledge, it is a declared thing, Nate, meaning they did create this lower-cost championship within a championship that strips out the endurance races for the sake of those who, uh, I guess you could either say, have an interest in just doing the, call them two-hour and 40-minute standard IMSA rounds, and or those who, from a budget standpoint, were saying, boy, GTD is just becoming far too expensive. 
Is there anything you can do to help with an alternate way of competing? And with that in mind, they came up with this Sprint Cup, which kicks off this weekend at Mid-Ohio. Can't wait to get there. And, yeah, so from what I understand, and I'm sure I could be wrong, but from what I understand, you must declare for it. I don't know. I don't believe just simply being part of the full-season championship means that uh, those GTD runners just automatically score points in the Sprint Cup. That, to me, would be, it would defeat the purpose of trying to create a championship within a championship if just everybody gets points simply for being there in that class. So I will do my best to confirm, but yeah, I think I think it is truly something that must be declared. And with that said, we're not looking at big numbers for this. So I can't say, Nate, whether this is something that's going to be a good idea that survived beyond 2019. Interesting, isn't it? There is some flux at the moment in the GT3 numbers. We saw a bit of a dip in the Blompan Something Something Championship at the weekend, uh, down to 17 cars. But uh, then the surprise edition of the Lone Star uh, car for this coming weekend will stick with um, the Sprint Championship uh, because Alex Eichmuller uh, says Compass Racing is debuting the uh, McLaren 720S GT3 Midi this weekend. They are indeed. New manufacturer for the series, new car for the team, new class of car for the team, new series for the team. What's the mindset for a team in position like Compass coming into the weekend? Will the team approach it differently? The team that's been in the series for a longer period of time. I can't imagine that Carl Thompson and his team uh, would look at this weekend as anything different than any other race they have been involved in. On the Compass side, they have been involved in uh, endurance racing a bit at the highest level. They seem to recall they're entering an Audi a couple of years ago. Uh, so they're not wholly unfamiliar at the highest level of IMSA slash Grand Am. Would say their true excellence has been demonstrated throughout many years, Graham, in the second tier, what was the Continental Tire Sports Car Challenge, which now the Michelin Pilot challenge category so compass a very experienced team i would say alex if you're just thinking general mindsets it's the debut for compass with this new mclaren 720s gt3 in the sprint cup aspect of the event if i'm going in i'm simply saying brand new car uh we would not expect or brand new car to imsa would not expect IMSA's technical team to over-advantage this new vehicle, competing with the, the varieties of Audis, Porsches, Lexus, Mercedes, Lamborghini, Ferrari, Acura, etc. Would not expect to see them given anything extra. I would definitely say that the one thing we can anticipate from Compass is wanting to have a good showing, and then hopefully... And I know this will be a big part of what they're wanting to do for the rest of the season, Graham, is demonstrate to their current customers, their current drivers, uh, to McLaren, to those in the rest of the GTD paddock, those playing in SRO here in the States and elsewhere, that this McLaren is a highly competitive car that can have strong finishes in IMSA's GTD category and not necessarily just the Sprint Cup going forward, but let's come back in 2020 and have two, three, who knows how many 
McLaren's run under the Compass banner in GTD for the full season. So, Alex, a very basic mindset, I would say. Have a good weekend. Don't set your expectations high because IMSA is unlikely to let that car run straight to the front. But overall, just start building good foundation to grow this uh, this brand new vehicle in the class and this team's name in uh, the highest level that IMSA has to offer and build towards becoming a full-time entrant ASAP. Absolutely. I can certainly tell you, by the way, uh, no names, no petrol, I'm afraid, but they have come pretty close to being a second car with a different team. Didn't come off, but maybe, maybe for next year. A um, couple more. Uh, Chris Ward uh, asks, what's more likely to happen? IMSA returns to the Indy Road Course or we see DPR machines at Le Mans? I would say, Chris, my hashtag me personally expectation would be the latter. Uh, there, There's modest interest that I have heard from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway of having sports car racing back. Was almost zero audience the last time it happened. They're really a place that from a operational standpoint it costs a lot to turn that facility on in the morning just due to its size the staff the infrastructure it's not cheap to make the indianapolis motor speedway come to life for an event and so unless it is nascar slash imsa writing a healthy check to effectively pay for the opportunity to be there uh, there would be minimal chance and if it was some sort of call it event share or split where generating revenue from ticket sales concession sales and whatnot there was some sort of mechanism through those items through hospitality uh, hospitality suites and so on if it was some sort of okay how are we going to pay for this to make it viable and actually give ims and uh, the members of its board a number that says, hey, it was valuable to have them here because we put, pick the, pick the number, $100,000, uh, $250,000 positive into our bottom line. Anything, I, I'm just round numbering it, but anything less than that, I don't think would really motivate anyone to try and pull something off. So unless it's being paid for or they come up with some sort of, all right, and here's the way we're, we expect IMS through a variety of sales to actually help you to generate income if you were to let us participate at effectively zero sanctioning fee. Unless it's one of those two mechanisms, I just can't see it happening, Chris. Uh, So that leads me to say that I think your second option here is the one that is more likely to happen. Uh, DPIs at Le Mans... I'm going to get to writing it here sometime soon. It's about to get stupidly busy for me, Graham. Uh, Last weekend was my last weekend off, I think, for six weeks straight. But, yeah, I'm not going to be surprised if and when we see very in the very near future someone at the ACO and FIA raise their hand and say, hypercar, yeah, I don't know if 2020 is going to happen. Just a gut feeling. I don't have any secret insights that i'm um, uh, spilling here i just <laughs> dpi as we've been saying uh, at least stateside graham since it debuted while watching in 2017 while watching the lmp1 hybrid class slowly dwindle it just became obvious from the outset that 
budget-minded manufacturer-involved DPIs might be the answer to the downturn in funding and desire among LMP1 hybrid uh, spending manufacturers. I'm not saying it's the perfect solution of all time, by no means, but racing being a cyclical thing goes through its boom and bust phases and with the crazy expensive prototype concept being in the midst of a bust the natural reaction to that is something that obviously is far less expensive usually far less technically extravagant but suits the times while manufacturers are figuring out who they are what they want to do shifts in marketplace interests as we're seeing now going from pure internal combustion engine road cars everywhere to hybrids fully electric cars etc in a transitional phase which tends to be the time when the automotive world says all right pump the brakes uh we're we still want to play but how can we do this at a more reasonable sum and without just breaking the technological bank and R&D budgets to do this. So that's why, Chris, I think, I feel, which is meaningless, but I feel we're headed towards a realization by the ACO and FIA that DPI 2.0, which is due to arrive here in a couple years in the United States uh, with a mild hybrid option, I think that's going to end up be looking like a really smart global prototype formula to adopt for some period of time that's not crazy long. Uh, that also gives everyone throughout the world the, the flexibility to say, hey, if by pick the number 2023, 2024, whatever, all right, the market's moving in a different direction, some defined way, and this is where we want to go. Yeah, then they have the flexibility to do that instead of saying, oh, we baked in rules, Graham, through 2028, and they can't possibly be moved. So anyways, bit of a long, <clears throat> bit of a long answer, Chris, but we have some other items that fall in this vein. So I might have answered some of that all in one, or we might have uh, some more aspects to pick up, Graham, when we get to those later. We'll come to it. And I have to say, for, for the record, I don't disagree. Uh, I think we... Uh, we will hear some things this weekend at Spa uh, from the ACO, uh, FIA, uh, around the uh, status of the regulations that we know have been provided to manufacturers, what direction that takes from here on in. The only guidance I'm being given is you've just got to wait and see who bites. They have done what I'm told they, I think I said uh, on the show last week, they should do. Just draw that red line. They have to see if someone comes. If someone isn't coming, then you've got to come up with what we know they've said, which is there is a plan B. And I am struggling to think uh, what a plan B might be other than exactly what you've just laid out, MP. Let's wait and see. A couple more still to come on IMSA. Um, Dan Glass says, has anyone figured out who paid for Nissan's IMSA, IMSA entry fee since Nissan said they weren't going to? And uh, and uh, Dan says he's not certain John Bennett wanted to fork over his own money for that. Hmm, well... If I'm remembering my press releases correctly, there was something that came out from Core Autosport, uh, and hopefully Aaron Siegel can correct me if I've got this wrong. Um, Ketchel, I always, sorry, Aaron, I always mangle your last name. Um, I seem to recall something in a press release or a quote in or around 
the announcement that Core had purchased the Nissan Enroque DPIs from Extreme Speed Motorsports, that there would be a follow-up press release announcing a, a sponsor slash who paid the manufacturer sanctioning agreement fee, whatnot, marketing thingy thing to IMSA. I don't recall seeing that and would guess that with core autosport team owner John Bennett's desire to race his own DPI and the financial success through his variety of businesses, it might have just been a private transaction. So that's what I've assumed all along, that since we did not read or really hear, to my recollection at least, um, hear anything about how that was resolved, yet the cars have been on track since the roar, um, I would just assume that that was uh, something handled privately between the team and the series. Brett Ross from Facebook says he's wondering why IMSA doesn't run all the classes at VIR. Is it a sponsor? Is it for safety reasons? Seems like a big enough track. Would be plenty of action. Uh, says thanks for the audio sounds of the cars on track. Makes me want to go to more races. And you should, Brett. And you should. Well, I'll, I'll grab the latter uh, portion here. Thanks for the comment there in the audio sounds, Brett. I put up the Acura ARX05 DPI in-car over the weekend. And today, slash tomorrow, I'm not sure exactly when, I'll be putting up uh, the Cadillac DPI VR. Then following that will be the Nissan Enroque DPI. And then on Friday... I'll be putting up the Mazda RT24P, uh, all of these from Mid-Ohio, the first three from last year at Mid-Ohio. I also captured the Mazda at Mid-Ohio as well. It happened to be a session that was in the rain, and so uh, I decided, well, let me re-record that this year, Friday morning with Mazda, and also knowing that they're spinning about 500 RPMs higher, we should actually hear the real angry 9,000 RPM plus 2-liter inline turbo four going so the whole <clears throat> desire here mr goodwin and also brett was to give us a first i believe all four dpi comparo sound signature feature at the same track so again in theory by friday lunchtime or so uh, we should have the ability for folks to listen to the acura cadillac mazda and nissan at Mid-Ohio, in the dry, and pick and choose what folks like the best. Uh, as for the VIR question, you'll notice, Brett, that with the way IMSA works its calendar, they go to, I believe, 12 tracks each season. And if I'm off, maybe it's 13, but I, off the top of my head, it's something like 12 different tracks. And yet there are 10 rounds or so per class. And that's to allow more circuit variety without forcing all of its entrants to go to 12 rounds, which from a budget standpoint, pretty much everyone said, nope, can't do it, cannot afford it. So at the most recent round at Long Beach, you'll notice that both GTD and LMP2, the two Pro-Am classes, were left off the calendar. 
If you look at uh, VAR, as you mentioned, it's the all GT weekend. So it makes up the one round, or I shouldn't say the one, but it makes up GTD missing Long Beach, plus it has GTLM. There's another round or two where GTLM's not involved. Uh, there's kind of this mix and blend. So I'm with you. There is, there, and there's no nothing here about safety reasons or otherwise about not having all four classes at VIR. IMSA just said, hey, we want to be able to feature our cars at more tracks than maybe the entire field can afford. So how can we do that? So we have both the awesome VIR All GT Weekend and Lime Rocks All GT Weekend. Then you'll notice that at some other tracks, uh, Detroit's one of them and a few others, there's a little bit of the who's in, who's not in, so that everybody equals out to the same number of total rounds per class. So that's the answer to that question and i believe that's the end of imsa which means i get to lob up i get to do my my best serve across the net here and hopefully our pal mr goodwin starts uh, smacking them all over the place with uh weck elms and echo so we're gonna go here starting off this lovely discussion with Lance Snyder, thanks for always sending in fun stuff, Lance, who says, can we officially change the name of Car Car to Chaos Car? Hashtag me personally, I think it fits with what's going on with the rules. If things look so buggered from out here, imagine how buggered they look from the inside. Um, well, I'm not going to kind of revisit the soapbox moment I had last week. Uh, still looking for a sponsor for that, by the way. Um, but and, I, and a mock sponsor at that. But uh, I'm just going to reiterate that I think all sides really need to take a breath here and decide exactly what it is. I want a red line. I want them to stick to a red line. That is the rules. They are the rules. That is the budget. Come, don't come. You make the choice. They tell us they've got a plan B. I believe that they've got a plan B, and I believe the plan B is not a million miles away from what you're describing, MB, and certainly is not GT+. Um, the uh, chaos, it has been chaotic. Um, and we, we're going to get into a period of time as well where I think that the likes of you and I and others involved in the periphery of the debate are going to be uh, riddled with points that say, but you said, and I think we have to just take another breath and think things are moving so quickly, so quickly, that you know what? Three months ago, ago you could have been completely correct. And all of a sudden it's just dissolved in front of your eyes. And I think that's, to a degree, what some of the parties involved here have actually seen. I think we need reality to strike pretty darn quick. Uh, and I, like you, Marshall, cannot see that they've got anything close to a package that's going to be ready to go for the published first year. I think we've got at least two years of grandfathering for the LMP1 non-hybrid cars that we've got right now. And on the in the spirit... <clears throat> of not climbing atop that soapbox. Just reiterate for those who maybe did not hear last week's episode or some of the recent ones on this topic, when any series announces a very large change in rules in its top class, there's a very simple <laughs> there's a very simple call and response that happens. It's like a very popular restaurant deciding it's going to radically alter its menu so your favorite place to go and get curry 
or pizza decides that it is going to become a Japanese fusion restaurant. Well, uh, cool. Announce that. Make that change. And open the doors. And, well, are the tables full? Is there a line out the door? Because this significant shift in business plan and strategy has been met with massive interest and subscription? Or is it crickets? <laughs> is it you and your buddies out on the street trying to just rope and steer people in to eat? Uh, is it just something where you go, all right, I guess we better go back to becoming a pizza joint or a curry or whatever it is. This is just the really basic stuff. I mean, you, we don't even need to get into any of the minutiae about rules and thoughts and plans and strategies. Uh, full carbon fiber prototype hypercars dressed to look like road hypercars. True production-based hypercars. Hybrids in, hybrids out. Uh, DRS, no DRS. All the just the constant changes and thoughts and ideas of what it could be. The real proof is very simple. How many manufacturers have said, we are in? We've had Toyota that I think just as a good member of the community has said, yeah, we're going to stay. They haven't said, oh, hypercar is it. It's our favorite thing ever, yeah, which we're going to build a million. They've well, they've, spe spe they've specifically said the opposite to that. They've specifically said they're prepared to put up with it effectively as a stepping stone to what comes next. That's, yeah. official, that's certainly what they've told me. But that's what, you know, this is Toyota being invested in endurance racing, not invested in what has been dreamt up by the ACO and FIA with hypercar. You've got Jim Glickenhaus, who's salivating at the idea of finally being able to take one of his cars to Le Mans, something he's mentioned from the moment they built the first one. So Jim has said he's in. Beyond that, again, I know we got lots of folks saying maybe, might, could, if you change this, shift that, who knows, not the first year, the second year, it's too late for the rules. You've got all kinds of folks effectively saying, yeah, man, we're not sure what you're doing with this menu. That's why so few of us are actually sitting down and dining. And that's just the really easy, simple, visual public and backroom evidence that they don't have this one right yet. And who knows if continuing to try and push it forward and tweak the menu will get them there. Or do they just need to throw up their hands and say, we're going to a completely different type of restaurant model, a different menu altogether, or we're just going to go back to what we had and ride that out for a little bit longer and keep thinking about it. But the bottom line is folks have not bought in and folks are not rushing through the door to do this thing that they're saying they want to do. So that we can't cannot escape that fact and i hope that was a mini soapbox as we move on to tom bacon's <laughs> question who says do you see anthony davidson remaining in the wec beyond 2019 i think anthony will remain if he wants to uh, i think he's been enjoying lmp2 racing that appears there is not going to be a berth for him at uh, toyota i think he's still got the raw speed that is going to be required at the top level. I have had private conversations with Ant. I'm fully well aware. Um, and I know some other stories are doing the rounds right now that he's looking uh, for other opportunities. Any endurance race driver, you know, um, looking for a lengthier career would, of course, be doing well to be looking at the GT market right now. And I wouldn't be remotely surprised uh, if Ant 
had a bit of a toe in the water there. I think he'd be very keen to find out whether or not racing GT car is something that suits his style. He's still the kind of, you know, constructively aggressive little terrier that he always has been. Um, love watching him hustle the, the LMP2 car around. I think his time in the LMP1 came to an end maybe a little too soon. But uh, I don't see Ant Davidson going away from racing anytime soon. And I don't see him going away from endurance racing anytime soon either. Uh, whether or not he chooses to stay in, the, stay in the WC depends actually on two things. Does Ant want to do that? And is there going to be a team that's going to want Ant on board? We, we yet to see, of course, uh, the shape of the WC grid in 2019-20. Hope he does, because he's great fun. I have no idea what type of salary is offered and earned by Ant doing Formula One commentary. I can say this, whenever he does decide to stop playing motor racing driver, he should certainly be well-paid to continue bringing amazing insights to he's Formula great. One he's broadcasts really and or any other broadcasts. So, uh, plus, he's just... Uh, I always smile when I see Ant because he's just such a delightful guy, funny as hell, gives you... You can give him really hard time. He'll give it right back to you. He's just a, just a really valuable member of the paddock and i can't say that about everybody nor can everybody say that about me but i can say that about him uh let's go to the mckay motorsport podcast who asks do you think that dpi or an early adaptation of a hybrid dpi could be the perfect solution for the lmp1 rules at le mans i think it could bring in a number of new manufacturers so having touched on this earlier, and I apologize, I should stop touching things, in our IMSA section, now it's Graham's turn. Uh, I think the answer is, as uh, MP said earlier, I think it's got validity at this point. You know, we're, in a world where things are so fluid right now, what you, need, yeah, what you need is just a little bit of stability and a pause. DPI isn't the answer to every question. It might be the answer to this question for a set period of time. There does need to be, though, some caution uh, kind of attached to this. At the moment, we have four DPI manufacturers, in parentheses. There are certainly others in the wings. Both Marsh and I are aware of, as yet, you know, unannounced uh, potential projects that could um, come forward. Uh, Ford, you, you know, we've, we've talked about before that there are going to be others out there and there's certainly interest amongst the chassis manufacturers in attracting those projects. The caution needs to be addressed here that if you do make that a global formula, there needs to be sufficient of a feeding, uh, a, a feeding chain that's a uh, food chain rather that is going to service all the available outlets for it. So in other words, four isn't going to hack it. Because with four, are they going to race IMSA? Are they going to race WEC? Are they going to race both? Uh, and then you get into, when you've got a common set of rules, what happens if one is struggling and the other one isn't? Do you then start to get incentives actually given to some of those manufacturers to kind of say, well, you could do that, but if we kind of gave you 25% off doing this, couldn't you come and do this instead? And that isn't going to make things happen in an orderly fashion moving forward. So the first thing needs to be a plan. The second thing needs to be to openly encourage growth in the number of manufacturers that would be doing that. And the third thing is that those manufacturers have got to decide to come. And, you know, the reality again here is this. 
I think, I think I thought for a long time, a global solution would be the ideal way forward. It is certainly possible that you could end up with a significant number of manufacturers. You've then got to get to the stage where you prove that. You can prove that uh, from the ACO's point of view on a global scale. It's deliverable on a North American scale. That much is readily apparent. But are there going to be sufficient manufacturers or manufacturer representatives to go and do a full world championship? That, I think, is a very open question when you're talking about DPI. You're then talking about something which is not about technology on display, which is what was the attraction to Porsche and to Audi and still is to Toyota, but a branding exercise. That is a fundamentally different thing to promote within uh, a global OEM. And that is a point that still has to be proven. Yes, more affordable. Yes, more deliverable more quickly. Is it sellable? That I don't know. Spoken a lot about Janetta's LMP1 non-hybrid vehicle uh, of late, so we might be able to cover this off some these two somewhat quickly since we've okay. already been into this a lot lately. Uh, one from Phil, one from Ben. Uh, Phil says, hashtag me personally. would love to see the genetic G60s at Silverstone uh, whack this August. Um, some positive news after the test at Aragon uh, this past week. What do you think about the overall situation with the car and team? Are there realistic expectations we fans can look forward to? Uh, ben adds in, or I'm sorry, that came from Phil. Um, just in general, where do you think this is at? Smoking Puppy 841 also says at least two teams bought the Janetta LMP1s, Manor and One Unknown. Do you have any idea who the unknown is? What, and what has Janetta done with a trio of LMP1 cars? Will we see any of them race? So some good news last week. You at yep. the you and the Daily Sports Car team wrote a lot of great stuff about this. Where do you think we might head future-wise in terms of traction and vehicles on track? There's a third question a bit further down on our list as well, which is around Ollie Webb. I'll come to that one in just a moment. The answer is this. As things stand today and with a looming deadline for the 2019-2020 FI World Endurance Championship uh, entries to be submitted, and bear in mind that is the only place that these cars can actually race in international competition, I can confidently tell you that anywhere between no and four Ginetta's could race next year um everything else comes down to uh paperwork and budget uh i absolutely know that there are two live projects right now um working their way through that process of making sure that uh, they've done the numbers right that uh that you know that actually everybody's on the same page getting the right people the right paperwork the right approvals the right everything together uh, what what has happened in terms of the, the cars? There are two immediately available cars, two AR engined Genetta G60s. One of which uh, tested last week. The other one of which was sitting uh, throughout in the factory at Garforth in Yorkshire, uh, but with a fresh AR engine. There are, I believe, enough parts to build a third from stock, and from there on in, you are talking about the potential to build more if there is demand for it. And of course they would, you don't have to do this until September, which is when the next opportunity to see the car would race. What do I expect? I expect the people uh, working on those projects to work very hard indeed. And I hope that there will be at least one car 
uh, appearing on the full season entry when we hear about it at some point after May the 21st. Um, I can tell you that Lawrence Tomlinson and his team at Janetta are working extremely hard to make uh, to put together a very attractive commercial proposition with those cars. Um, I've had a couple of kind of private messages from people asking me, you know, really what happened? What, you know, what can you really tell us? What I can really tell you is exactly what I wrote. I went into that test with uh, a conversation ringing in my ears from Lawrence Tomlinson. I want to know what you think. You know, I want you to write exactly what you see. That's what I did. That car was stone cold fast. It operated, by the way, to full LMP1 uh, regulations. Uh, was on something like quarter to a third full tanks, which is what I expect the rest of the cars were as well. Did a lot of its running on older Michelin tyres. Had half a day on the development rubber. That was not when the fastest time came uh, and was running for the first two days with the boost on the AR dialed down by about 10%. That car is quick. And from what we could see, albeit with somewhat less than a thousand thousand kilometers of running it was pretty reliable too it was a minor gear selection uh, issue was the only issue over three days it is a worthy addition to that cohort and boy at the moment do they need it so i hope that the fine people in at least two teams that are currently looking at running the Ginetta um, actually get somewhere because the days of laughing at that project should be kicked firmly into the weeds um, the, the other question, by the way, came about the presence at the test of Ollie Webb. Stephen Gates, uh, MP, says that given that Ollie tested the Ginetta P1, does it mean bike haulers are looking to run the car next season? Does Ollie have backers and other team lined up? Nothing to do with bike haulers. Bike haulers were perfectly happy for Oliver to uh, step into the car. That came just before he was due to go and do the shakedown of the uh, by Collis with the Ginetta, uh, sorry, with Ginetta with the Gibson engine. Uh, that, I believe, was delayed a day or two, but has now happened. We'll see the car effectively with a live test uh, at Spa this weekend. So nothing to do with by Collis looking uh, at the Ginetta. I will, though, have a bit of an insight into things that are going on at by Collis, um, probably on Daily Sports Cup before this, this uh, podcast hits the web. Uh, Ollie was basically there to take a look, look at his options as a, a basically as a, a free agent, as a driver for what might happen moving forward and where he might take his budget in the next season. And I can tell you, um, you've heard what uh, he had to say uh, into a microphone and inside the sports car paddock uh, privately. He told me really super impressed. Hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. Janetta will now be supplying LMP1 engines, according to Graham Goodwin <laughs> on today's episode. Uh, let's see. Where shall we wander next? We are blessed this week with far more questions than we can get to in 90 minutes. But as we always urge, if we don't get to the question you sent in, and you really want one of the two monkeys yapping into microphones to answer it, send it in again. You might even have to do a third or fourth time, but... We will get to them eventually. <clears throat> Let's go to Johnny Schultz. <clears throat> We've got a couple people here wanting to know about VW's I period D period R. If VW could find a possibility for quick battery changes, could the IDR compete in the 2021 Le Mans 24 hours as a garage 56 entry? John Sable as well says... 
I continue to be frustrated seeing the IDR out in the world while the WEC car car plan appears to flounder. Isn't this what car car should be? And on that note, do you think it's too much of a stretch for a manufacturer like VW to take the IDR and convert it to an endurance car? Clearly, it would take a lot of work to make it a hybrid, but do you think this would be of interest? Or is it better marketing money spent to do just one-off runs like they are doing? If it's the latter, I fear the business model of full-season endurance racing for OEMs. I mean, yeah, a turbo diesel, maybe. <laughs> well, the IDR is designed to do certain jobs very well. It is based, lest we forget, on a Norma CN chassis. In fact, the uh, the Norma CN chassis that the IDR um, raced, uh, sorry, ran at uh, Pikes Peak was the car that uh, that uh, Roman Dumas took up the hill the previous year. That was the chassis, and that was part of his deal with VW, was to take the car um, and all that they had learned to that project. So it's a CN car underneath it. So what do we know about the car? It's damn fast, and it's a pretty-looking thing. We don't know um, how quickly that car can be turned around and what, what technology would need to be brought to it to make it turn around. Neither do we know... Uh, just exactly uh, how well engineered it would be for the realities of car-to-car competition rather than a single run by itself, as it did at Pikes Peak, as it's due to do with record runs at the Nürburgring. So we shouldn't immediately confuse a car that is mesmerizingly quick at one particular discipline as being the solution for another. Um, It's a technology demonstrator. That is what it is. It's there to do, frankly, almost exactly the same job as Porsche did with the 919 um, hybrid hashtag tribute, which is gather headlines, gather them in epic quantities. And yes, if there's a technology lesson or two to be learned, then let's go and learn that. Do I think that is the answer to car car? No, I really don't. I really genuinely don't. Do I think it would have validity as a garage 56 concept? Well, with all the engineering questions answered, why the heck not, is the honest answer. Um, it certainly would bring an awful lot of interest to the project. Would VW at the moment have the appetite to do that? Ask VW. My guess is not. I think they would take an opportunity to actually do a demo run there uh, you know, uh, very quickly indeed if offered. But I don't see that being a car that races at the Le Mans 24 hours anytime soon. Got six, seven more really, really good WEC Aslam Aco Elms questions. Going to jump to our pal Right Turn Lever, who says in 2020, will LMP2 continue to be an open tire formula in the WEC, or will it also have to go to a spec tire? I really, really hope that we don't go down the road of a spec tire per class, which I think is part of the vision. Moving forward, I think that would be a big mistake, and I think it would be a particularly big mistake for LMP2. I think there is an opportunity offered with the situation we find ourselves in. If we presume at the moment either a delay, a postponement, or a recasting of hypercar uh, moving forward, I think there is a real opportunity here to leave a successful class alone. Not this weekend coming, but next weekend at Monza, we'll have 19 19 LMP2 cars on that grid. And, you know, with the instability elsewhere in 
sports car racing as opposed to GT racing, sports car racing. Just don't think you can mess with that. There is something that actually, um, you know, I know that some very sensible people in the marketplace have said very directly to the rule makers, do not mess with the customer. And the customer here are the rich guys buying those seats in those cars. Do not mess with the customer's opportunity to make choice. They don't have a choice about engine. They do have a choice about chassis and they have a choice about tires and they like it that way. Don't mess with it. And Graham, I'll just throw in because it's fun with numbers. It's one of the things I enjoy. You mentioned 19 LMP2 cars coming up. This weekend's IMSA event at Mid-Ohio, the Acura Sports Car Challenge. All four classes on display in the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. 36 total entries. So first of all, this 19 you mentioned is half. With a single class is half of all four IMSAs bringing this weekend. And then if we look, if we exclude GTD, which happens to be IMSA's most populous class, if you take the 11 DPIs, the two P2s, and throw in all eight GTLM, what you would call GTE Pro, in the WEC, if you add those together, it only comes up to 21. So yep. DPI, P2, and GTLM are only two more than what a single class is going to put well, on the track well, with LMP2. It just speaks to the strength that, well, it not only supports the strength that you mentioned, but also speaks to a very different model of what's working in Europe versus what's working in the U.S., Spot on. And oddly enough, you take out the two uh, LMP2 cars. We're talking LMP2 here. Take out the two LMP2 cars, and it's the same number. It's 19 and 19. It's 19 of the effectively full pro intentioned classes in IMSA and 19 of the top class cars in uh, the LMS. And that's not to say one's better than the other. They've both got things going for them, as you quite rightly say, in their own marketplaces. But they are the numbers you should not be messing with if you're a sanctioning body. And you certainly shouldn't be messing with them um, if you're not sure what's going to be on the other side of that meddling. And that's what my principal concern is at the moment about the direction that's been going on with the uh, the hypercar, the car car, the chaos car, whichever we're going to call it this week. I like chaos car. That might I be that that <laughs> might bump car car that we came up with a year ago. I think chaos car might be sticking. Well, well, we'll wait and see. But for me, you know, you've just got to stick with where your business model is. And for me, one of the the clearest signs that the tide is beginning to turn is the move from 60 to 62 entries at Le Mans. They've done that to get more teams in. That's what they've done that for. They recognize that the revenue for that race is going to come from different sources moving forward. And those different sources are professional teams with pro-am driver lineups. And there is a numbers game once you make that decision. That's why that decision has been made. And yes, it gives them a bit of body armor should the market change in the future. If they can make the 62 work, and I'm sure they can. There's been some groundworks going on at the Mon over the last week or so to prep for those uh, temporary structures. Then when we move towards 2023 and the uh, replacement of the current pit structure, and I think moving towards probably 65 entries, then you give yourself strength in numbers. You know, if you get more factory entries coming from whichever class structure you've got, then great. Commercially, you're stronger. 
But if you've not got those factory entries, you've given yourself more flexibility to put more of those professional teams in. So at the very least, you're able to welcome more teams uh, from your full season entries on both sides of the Atlantic and in Asia uh, that will give you more revenue into that race week. Can I float an idea that piggybacks off of something I think I mentioned a year ago, which was there's only (laughs) so much physical footprint for Le Mans to add additional garages. So again, we're expanding from 60 to now 62 in the same event where, as you mentioned, could get out to 65. Audi built a big old structure there that kind of caps expanding further up the hill uh, you'd have to knock down the ACO administration building if you wanted to add more garages going back towards the Forge Canes. So, uh, I, as I mentioned about a year ago, and I'm sure others had the idea. What about a mezzanine? What you know? What about a little drive up to the second tier and do your pit stops and garaging up there, and then come back down onto pit lane? You know, I've just got <clears throat> along those lines, thinking of highways, on ramps, off ramps, little overpasses, and such. You know, if we just want to increase the entry count, but maybe not oversubscribe the physical track surface, the, the full Le Mans track surface, Graham, how about a similar kind of on-ramp, off-ramp so we could send over, starting next year, if they were to build it, IMSA's DPIs, maybe, who knows, GTD, to do 24 hours of Le Mans, but on the Le Mans Bugatti circuit. So, see, for the most part, they're playing among themselves, not really part of the greater WEC round. But, you know, it kind of appeases everything. I mean, what other series should we include in the uh, Le Mans Bugatti 24 Hours event? I think we can have a crack at that. Well, I think, you know, you could have that mezzanine. You could call it possibly. What about the Bouchou Annex? Yes! the, The people up there could be looking down on all the other drivers. Speaking of crack, I need to consume less of it before we record. All right, let's move on to Joe Ocampera, who says, let's talk about the 2019-2020 WEC and presumably another year as well. Uh, the competition in LMP1 has not been delivered as promised. Will anyone stick around? Is the WEC itself in hot water? To have three or four consecutive, quote, 24 hours of Toyota is surely not acceptable. I know this is totally, a, a variation. Totally, yeah. totally agree. It's a variation totally of, of the themes we've been hitting today and, and many in, in recent episodes as well. But what's the feeling in the paddock that you've gotten? I know it's been a little while since there's been a WEC race, but what's the general feeling you've gotten of late and speaking with folks, Graham, as to the, yeah, boy, if this is going to just end up being more of a, a Toyota TS050 butt kicking if we don't move straight into a quote chaos car uh, a year from now or a year and a half from now any thoughts of folks saying yeah we might not want to stick around if that's the case well no I think is the straight answer Uh, whether or not that happens kind of overnight um, you know is another thing but in terms of if you like the threat being laid the answer is no however uh, I am absolutely aware that there is consistent pressure being leveled to level that playing field i'm you know i'm firmly of the opinion eot in this regard has been a failure um and it's been a failure principally because business interest and politics has come into it and some would say that's fair 
in one way because you've got one massively invested factory team that finds themselves alone in that wilderness, not of their own making, having invested in the rule book, having invested in technology. My personal view is this. Time's up. At the end of the Mon 24 Hours this year, I have little doubts, massive drama aside, Toyota should win uh, their second um, uh, Le Mans 24 Hours in a single season, let's not forget, and will win the FI uh, World Championship. So they will have got a World Championship and two Le Mans wins, aided to some degree at least, although frankly I think they'd have won them anyway, um, by the way that the AOT and the rule book has been expressed. We have got a significant change coming into the weekend in the fuel per lap uh, values have been withdrawn. Uh, there is cavalry on the horizon in the shape of a development front tyre, which will work a lot better for the non-hybrid cars. The tyres the that the LMP1 non-hybrids currently use are designed for the hybrids and therefore don't get up to operating temperature terribly easily because they've not got vast amounts of power being blasted through them as they do in the, in the hybrids, which means that those cars are struggling with well, in tyre terms, a mechanical disadvantage. Uh, but yes, my view, as this, and the sportsman in me, and this is a little bit of a soapbox, is time's up. That's your investment right there. You've got your headlines. You've got what you wanted. If you want to stay, that'd be brilliant. We'd love to come and take you on because you still have got the quickest car and you've still got, frankly, the most reliable LMP1 car. But in performance terms... And in terms of the time it takes to turn around those cars in the pit lane, game's up now. Now it's time to allow those cars to do what they can do. Make no mistake, the rebellions of this world, the S&Ps of this world, even the Bicolis of this world, uh, and for that matter, we've, as we've seen on that planet, the Genettas of this world, are massively capable race cars. It's time we saw that. It's time we were excited by that in the way that we should be. And it is now time to make it very clear that after the Le Mans 24 hours in 2019, that either EOT is approached with the, um, the emphasis being on equalization or we move to BOP. You're going to do that anyway, whichever solution you go to. So let's have a start now at getting some of that data down and let's go racing because right now people are turning off and we don't want that to happen. It's too good. The potential is too good. The standard of the driving is too good. So let's have a better competition out there for all of the FIWC moving forward. Yeah, suckers. <laughs> all right. We're going to keep moving here. Keep it moving. We're going to go to Brian Dawkins. Many fans have expressed an interest in seeing DPI's race at Le Mans. Have any of the current DPI manufacturers expressed an interest or willingness to enter the WEC or are they only interested in Le Mans? If they have, would they continue to run in IMSA? I can flag that one up pretty quickly, Graham. So the last portion of your, your note here, Brian, is actually the central thing that I keep thinking of and falls as a concern. If we do, as my gut, my sizable gut is telling me, end up in a place here sometime soon where DPI 2.0, this second generation rule set that's coming that we all expect to incorporate hybrids. If this does become the global 
format used in WEC and IMSA as well. Who knows, Graham, if and how that might filter down into ELMS, Asian Le Mans Series, etc. But we'll just stick, Brian, with IMSA and the WEC right now. If this does become a, a quote, global formula for the top tier of prototypes, yeah, I do have questions and concerns as to whether this might be something that dilutes the strength IMSA has been seeing. Could this pull a manufacturer away and choose to go international endurance racing instead of domestically here? At least if we look at the programs we have right now, three of the four are true manufacturer efforts. The Acura that is commissioned and done and supported here in the U.S. So this is a strictly U.S. thing. If we're looking at the finances, management, everything. Same with Cadillac. That is something that is done here and it is, you know, really, truly administered and signed off on in the States. Same with Mazda. Uh, there's, you know, obvious buy-in in Japan, but this is something funded here in the U.S., supported, etc., etc. So on the Nissan side, they are a contracted supplier. They're not in as a manufacturer, so that doesn't concern me as to what they may or may not do. But I am, there is a little something that makes me wonder, hmm, if by 20, I don't know what year it might be, Graham, 20, 21, 22, whatever we, if there is this decision for DPI to be the global formula here shortly, could this be something where at least one, maybe more of the full factories here in the U.S. say, you know, this has been really good. We have gotten value in doing this domestically. Now, let's maybe shift to a different model and try and get some other marketing gains by going international. Um, there, there's a slight concern there. There's also the counter question of if this is opened up as the new formula, how many manufacturers in Europe elsewhere, maybe including the U.S., would say, okay, we want to jump into this European DPI thing. And could any of them say, oh, and we can also play in a very big market that's important to us uh, for vehicle sales, the United States, and also have a little bit of a dual-pronged thing there. So we hope, I think everyone would hope that if this happens, if it becomes the global solution, and there are new brands that come in that want to really focus on the WEC opportunity, uh, it would be great if this increased the car counts in IMSA and WEC uh, without losing any of the current manufacturers jumping across strictly to do the other. To get to the first question, Acura has been there as a manufacturer uh, in LMP1 and LMP2, uh, primarily under the HPD banner, but regardless, they have been there. They do hold a great interest. Le Mans is a big deal for them. If that door were opened, I would absolutely expect something to happen. Cadillac, that's a question mark. I think there would have to be, Brian, a bit of a internal shift in that from a budget standpoint, Cadillac has gone from really tightly controlling its involvement in DPI select number of teams really focusing its efforts and resources on a limited number of cars and teams to opening up the books they've add they represent basically little i think more than half of the dpi field right now with their dpi vrs built by cadillac i'm sorry built by delara what i believe has happened though is the amount that it takes to play to support all of this on an annual basis 
has actually been brought down to a, a fairly modest number, a good number for them, where they're getting great bang for the buck. They're not having to invest heavily in all this each year, and the marketing returns are comparatively high to what it costs to be there. That would be everything that's counter to competing at Le Mans and possibly even the full WEC. That would be needing to go back and ask for a much bigger number that they're not currently at right now. And so I don't know if that is something Cadillac would take on or if they would say, you know, we're good. We're good with what we're doing here. If, if any of y'all want to go over and play there, great. But just as a factory, we're probably not going to be the ones under, underwriting that. So they're a question mark for me on that topic. Mazda, I could absolutely see them wanting to go back. But as for that being fully paid for from the U.S. branch, that I don't know. I think that might end up being more a decision coming out of Japan and possibly some or all the budget needing to come from there. So that, again, if I'm accurate, Brian, would be a case where those who pull all the strings here in the U.S. would not necessarily be fully in charge. Uh, If Mazda were to say, great, we're going back to win our second, following up on their 1991 victory. So... I know that at least two of the four in IMSA right now would love to be back at Le Mans if there was a way to open that door. Nissan, I'm sure, would love to have their name represented by anyone that wanted to buy a Nissan Enroque DPI or if it were the core team wanting to go over and play, but they are not currently spending anything on anything when it comes to this. So, yeah, Cadillac's the only one that I'm unsure of on this topic. For me, look, there's an ideal. The ideal is three to five manufacturers in each championship. And for me, the ideal is that you have two, possibly three, gathering of those clans, that you have those those fields coming together at them on. You've got those teams coming together, potentially at the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona. Um, and think of that, six to ten factory-backed, factory-blessed efforts racing together. Uh, in truly global events. And that gives us something that we've not currently got. Um, That's the holy grail. Whether or not that would come with hypercar or uh, something somewhere in the future or with something that looks like DPI or DPI Gen 2, that is what the holy grail was always about to to look forward uh, and and try to find a global formula. Is it attainable? I think we're going to find out sooner than people think whether or not that's attainable. Um, Let's wait and see. Going to jump to a couple of more before we close out. Weck, Aslam, Echo, Elms, whatever the heck we call it, because we have plenty in general and a couple in fun, and we want to get to the general and fun. Uh, let's see. Okay. Here's a fun little one on a similar theme from Joshua Jackson. Is there anything that could stop one of the DPI teams from submitting an entry to Le Mans with the base P2 chassis they use and have their DPI manufacturer uh, serve and be the title sponsor of the team? Um, something tells me, Joshua, that our friends at the ACO and WEC would use the big old denied stamp on that entry, knowing Ooh. that uh, they, at least in their current rule set specifically, uh, do not want to have manufacturers circumventing the rules well, and remember, being in as full 
as, as known, acknowledged major manufacturers in another series come and do a workaround. I know that we have, you know, we have Alpine branded this and P2, and we've got the, uh, the Russian, yeah, the Aris, the Russian uh, limo manufacturer. But again, this is a naming exercise. This it would be something where you go, well, hey, wait a minute. Uh, Acura is the sponsor of this Areca 07, and we know they're competing in IMSA. That, I think, would be a little too in the face, or in their, their face of trying to circumvent the rules. Just a guess, though. Uh, let's see. Let's go to two more. Uh, we'll go to Jacob Baim. Hey, Jacob. He says, last week you answered a question about the whereabouts of the old crop of L- LMP2 cars. My question piggybacks on it. Do you know where the Jota Sports original Mighty Number no. 38 chassis resides? Is it alive? Is it race-worthy? Is it on display somewhere? I assume he's referring to the yes, uh, Lamar class-winning Mighty Number no. 38. Did, uh, I do know where it is. At least it's between one of two places. It's You're sitting either. in it now. You're sitting I wish. in it now. Um, it's either still at Joda Sports headquarters, but it is bound to, to go to, because it's owned by Simon Dolan. So it will eventually end up in Simon Dolan's home. It was completely renovated. We had a fantastic uh, opportunity to see the car. I think it was at Spa last year. Um, it sat in the back of the garage, looked absolutely great. But that car is due to join Simon. There are actually two cars, um, two chassis that did carry uh, that number one only race once and crashed. Um, so they, I think there's going to be a show car. There's going to be the real car. Simon owns the real car and it will be his plaything forever. Do I expect to see the thing back on track? No time soon, but it's got such heritage. I think the likelihood is you will see that out being demonstrated somewhere sometime. Simon, uh, certainly not ready to hang up his helmet anytime soon. All right. Quick last one. In your A number one category comes in from Josh Ridgen, who says, I know I'm a few weeks late, but could you explain Euro International's pre-event issues at Paul Ricard? Uh, you're very simple. Uh, uh, financial commercial dispute with uh, one of last year's drivers, Giorgio Mondini. Um, the way it works with French law is that uh, you go to court, you get a court order. The police come and seize assets. That's what they did. Police turned up in quite alarming numbers to Paul Ricard and the cars and everything that was attached to the cars were taken away. Uh, That gave the team some pretty major issues for a couple of days before they could get replacement chassis. uh, One from Niger, their development car, which actually led the race for a very considerable length of time. And one from Graf Racing, which did allow uh, Euro International to get their cars, their team's out on track but commercial disputes not the first time we've seen it we've seen it uh, in the Le Mans uh, pit lane not that long ago in the years before uh, Bicolis was called Bicolis when it was called Lotus uh, parts and in fact all of their cars seized from the Le Mans pit lane that didn't go down well and then there was another one it was a team whose name I can never immediately recall ran a pair of Morgan LMP2s very briefly in the uh, FIWC and one of those cars too was seized uh, in a dispute about bills not being paid. So it does happen from time to time. We're going to jump into one of our favorite categories, 
Name General, General, but I call it General because I watched too many bad World War II movies, and I should apologize to my wife for that, who uh, just refers to that as boy time. Uh, We'll go with (laughs) Lars. Uh, Lars, first question here. We need to talk about pit lane speed limiters. Why are they seemingly so difficult to calibrate? 60 kph is 60 kph, no? Or is it a question of not wanting to engage them? for fear they might not disengage when required. Um, well, I, I, how's this, Lars? They're not automated. And so as long as we have human intervention and the possibility of folks either coming in too fast and not getting down to the approximate speed needed and then engaging the pit speed limiter before the... Uh, measurement, the initial measurement point where you must be at 60 kph or whatever the speed happens to be in whatever series. Keep in mind that rushing in uh, and you know crossing that line at say 62 kph while you're still braking, uh, the pit lane speed limiter is still works with physics and uh, will be doing its best to work with whatever it's being asked to do, but it won't just magically pump the brakes and make sure that you are complying at all times. Uh, Leaving the pit lane as well, pulling out of the box, I mean, you can certainly go well past whatever that number is before it's engaged, and if someone is tracking you and using a radar gun or otherwise, uh, there's certainly a chance to break that. You could switch it off early. There's all kinds of things on top of calibration. So, yeah, as long as people are expected to use thumbs uh, or other digits to make them turn on or turn off, you're always going to have the possibility of errors, knowing that the cars are certainly not trundling along at 60 kph before they engage it. There's usually some sort of ramp down, and then also wanting to make the stop as quick as possible, a ramp up once you get to the end of the pit lane speed measurement area. So, yeah, people, those darn people. Let's go to Baxter next. Graham, we need you to answer this for Baxter. Robo Robo Race will be kicking off their first season, quote, soon with modified LMP3 cars and a human driver starting the race. Is it sports car racing or not? No, it isn't. It might be a sports car racing, but it's not sports car racing. Um, I actually saw uh, one of the original Robo Race cars um, dressed up fairly recently. In fact, it was Charlie Robertson from Genetta because the original cars were based on the Genetta P3 chassis. Um, my God, that thing looks spectacular. But no, it isn't. What it is is a fantastic technology demonstrator. Uh, it's another level on from sim technology and all the e-racing activity that we've seen growing in massively in popularity. But it fundamentally is not sports car racing. Um, it doesn't make it any less valuable in some ways it makes it very relevant to what's actually going on in the wider world do i want to watch it no no i don't i really don't quite interested in the cars quite interested to see how they work would i actually spend time uh watching that six or seven times a year on a live stream or trackside i fundamentally wouldn't i'm really sorry but not something at this stage that interests me whatsoever what i would like to see graham and it, this has only occurred to me now, so I realize it might be a little bit late. You and I need to put in for press credentials and also see if we can get paid to do <laughs> the post-race press conferences. Oh! Where I'm, what do they do? 
do they wheel these cars into the media center? And is there some sort of, you know, one has the voice of Siri, one has the voice of Alexa. I don't know how that goes. But I do Might be like good if they argue. If they argue, for yeah. sure, it was a good race. Oh, it just curse each other out. You, Evan Effer, yep. I'm gonna blank in the backside of your such and such. Yeah, but that I mean, yeah. So, from a reporting standpoint, boy, that should be a lot of fun. You're going to do what? Speak with the team principal or engineer? Uh, it's a whole I, different it's a, literally a whole different world isn't it it's kind of I, I guess that's it all of a sudden you've got some guy with a laptop becomes you know the media personality yes people with laptops often big media personalities anyways yeah I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it's an interesting exercise but I think there's just a basic well we'll find again we'll find out I could be a thousand percent wrong but in general, humans have, have proven over the years that they enjoy following the exploits of other humans in sport, in drama, in just you name yep. it. Uh, yep. I don't. It would be hard for me to fathom how folks truly get fired up about this, knowing that it's it's not Robo Wars. I mean, the, now I love watching that on the Discovery Channel or whatever it's on, where it's just robots trying to destroy one another. Now, that's amusing. But watching robotic-controlled race cars try and compete when we already have humans driving those race cars and doing human things... Uh, I mean, there could, again, it could be interesting if one of these robo-controlled vehicles uh, lunges down the inside and pulls off an amazing pass or just barges so-and-so out of the way. Do we start talking about has Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, come back to life in the form of an electronic ghost? And is he banging wheels with, again, we could, Christoph Bouchou, who knows? I mean, again, they, this could be interesting and amusing. I just know that since we basketball NBA is right now is in the midst of its playoffs and it's an electric thing to watch every night, Graham, because each team that's playing has some amazing stars and seeing what they can do is phenomenal. And so the thought of we already have something being performed for our entertainment and amusement at a very high level with human beings. And let's, now try a version of something that already exists but let's put in this case let's put robots on the basketball course i'm sorry on the basketball court and watch them try and shoot and watch them set pick and rolls and whatnot and you go okay again that might be a crazy blast to watch once twice i don't know but you kind of already have the maximum form of the art being practiced by living things again i don't know maybe this will become something that is truly fascinating the Ch chickens in touring cars chickens in touring ah! cars. yes ian chicken in touring cars that uh, that's an even better series but <laughs> i don't know this is a, a bit of a a socio quandary we'll find out i mean again tv ratings and otherwise will tell yeah, yeah. us whether this is something where folks go man that was i gotta see more of it or if I, what I think is folks are going to go, oh, that was amusing. It was an oddity to tune in and watch, but yeah. What are you going to do it again? That's not it. That's, <laughs> my guess would be the point of doing it is to show you can do it, and then you've sort of done it. Really? Yeah. 
All right, let's go to similar questions here. I'm going to throw to you on this, and we've got about 10 minutes left or so. Yeah. Just talking about BOP, success ballast, spirits and thoughts. One from Mike Hogg says, kind of an across the sport question here from hashtag me personally. I love the fact that hashtag me personally is becoming a thing <laughs> on our show. Uh, with strict regulations and ever more ridiculous balance and equalization methods, meaning that we've now gone too far into a somewhat sterile, everything looks much the same and is generally exact the same performance-wise. Do you think we'll ever see things swing back the other way to kind of a run what you brung era like we had in the 90s? Or is the money just not there anymore for manufacturers and privateers to th throw that together? I'll maybe just mention here, manufacturers opt in or opt out to this kind of stuff stuff mike so uh there's no one forcing them to do anything so uh with also our pal nick blacow says given the fact that unrestricted regulations of the good old days are now a thing of the past which would you prefer as a method of balancing gt and possibly prototypes bop or success ballast having watched the british turn car championship this weekend on tv and knowing that it is used uh, in the dtm uh it occurs to me that the actual weight quote success ballast way of creating differences in cars that would be otherwise very similar in performance is also a good but short-term way of reigning in the faster cars that would otherwise dominate in a championship he also says hashtag me personally i guess that it's not without its faults but anything to stop the constant complainer whining new word great word by the way nick of teams about bop has to be a good thing so um what do you think could we go back to the old days of old? Should we try success ballast instead of BOP? Give us your thoughts, Osage. Uh, I think we're heading in a particular direction. Um, and I think we're heading in a direction where if we're talking about the kind of cars we're looking at now, big GT cars, LMP cars, DPIs, etc., that's increasingly the numbers, the physical numbers of the cars are going to come from the pro-am ranks without a shadow of a doubt. That means for me that you are, unless someone takes a completely sea change attitude to this, stuck now in that, uh, in that path that basically talks about equalization on track. If you're going to spend the million, two million, three million, think of a number, um, on racing, that's the rule books that we've now got effectively in the words of David Heimeyer Hansen, um, promised guys like me, and by the way, he didn't say this is a good thing, promised guys like me that we could win the race. Uh, I don't see that pattern changing as the squeeze goes on to uh, factory budgets. That If you're looking for the numbers that mean you can sustain international competition or even national continental competition, that that is only going to come from professional teams with wealthy drivers employing pro drivers to drive with them, pro and racing. And they will only keep coming if they can actually be somewhere in that competition. That means what you've got with GT3 racing, what you've got with LMP3 racing, for instance, and LMP2 racing. I think increasingly, I think we're going to start to see uh, just small measures of BOP applied in those directions. So sadly, on one level, I think we are heading to things that are a little bit more vanilla in that regard. Doesn't mean to say, by the way, the racing is worse because quite often it can be better. It does mean that across uh, a long distance race, you know, two hours, three, four, six, eight, twelve, twenty-four, it does keep people 
more or less on the same island. Uh, I say that it's not my choice, but I think that's where we are heading. I don't see them reversing that course, I'm afraid. Well, we're almost done coursing through what we will select for general. And there are, again, there are a number. We're going to have to leave a number of here. Orphan a number of questions. Our pal Gary Quarterman threw this one in. I believe it might be two weeks in a row. So uh, he says, are there any plans to launch a The Week in Sports Cars podcast t-shirt? I'm sure they would be a bestseller amongst your following. Uh, yes, we have. It's there. I have done a horrible job of promoting it, Gary. I still need to post the link on the new MarshallPruittPodcast.com site, but I will do that. I promise I shouldn't promise because when I promise, I never actually get it done in time. But I will do my best to make this painfully evident as to where it can be found. TorontoMotorsports.com is where it can be purchased. But for those who don't want to do Googling and searching for TorontoMotorsports.com and then the Weekend Sports Cars t-shirt, I will make sure to put a link on MarshallPruittPodcast.com. Maybe, Graham, you can do the same on DailySportsCar.com. And uh, maybe we should mention that it's available if folks want it. Um, just as a little sidebar, which I don't know if it means anything, but I, I slash we don't profit from it. It's just my friend Derek Koska, Toronto Motorsports, uh, is kind enough to make some T-shirts for those who, if you want them, they're there. He isn't. He's not getting rich off it either, but we just try and make sure that if you like this silly thing that we do and you want to represent it, uh, then there is something you can do that with. And uh, so there you go. So, but I'll get the the link up here, and hopefully Graham can do that as well. And maybe we should just include that when we post our weekly request for questions, so that the link is there, since folks are indeed asking about it while posting questions. All right, why don't we go to for now? Since there's only a couple, let's go to fun. If you want to take that. Graham, and again, if we did not get your question in any of the previous categories and you want them answered, please send them in and we will do our darndest. Okay, Coke, let's go with Nick Dodbinyak, uh, isn't it? We, we decided this was. Formula E stop of Van Dormel, WC does from this weekend. IndyCar is RHR. Who from the sports car paddock are you absolutely not getting on an airplane with? Hashtag me personally, again. I'm avoiding Timo Bernard, at least while he's wearing Mazda gear. I think this is basically talking about the Jonas, isn't it? I have no idea what this is about. I think this is the luckless guys in particular oh, competition. Okay. Yeah. Who won? You know, Nick, that's a great question. If I was smart enough, I would have picked up on what you're getting after. Um, yeah, it, it also reminds me of the old Ronnie Dangerfield kind of sort of joke of... Uh, I woke up this morning, I went to grab a cup of coffee, and the handle broke off. Then I went to grab my briefcase, and the handle broke off of that. Now I'm afraid to take a leak. So, um, yeah, uh, let's see. I, uh, right now, right now, I'm feeling Timo, because let's just say that if someone decided to make an all-German version of the Fantastic Four movie franchise, he'd be Johnny Blaze. He would be Mr. <laughs> Flame On, because, damn it, every time I've seen him climb into a car this year, he has then climbed out while staring at flames licking out of something. So, yeah, it'd be Timo. Absolutely Timo. Unfortunately, 
I think our boy Ryan Hunter Ray, though, although he has been the absolute top destination for cartoon anvils falling out of the sky, it's decreased a little bit. Uh, his his IndyCar season has, although they've only had a handful of races, his season has turned around a little bit. So uh, right now he is holding fifth in the championship. So uh, after a really bad start to the year, he's at a third and eighth and a fifth. We're hoping that with him stepping into the Mazda RT24P this weekend at Meadow Graham in place of Harry Tinknell, who will be playing Ford in the WEC, that uh, maybe Ryan can bring some of that reverse bad luck to Mazda. And uh, yeah, who knows? If they end up winning, does that mean Harry gets the boot? Do we? Does that confirm that Harry has yeah. been the actual source of all bad luck? Well, oddly enough, Harry was going to be one of the people I, I referenced here because it does strike me that Ford in the WEC, forget the Mazda thing for a minute, Ford in the WEC and Corvette in IMSA have had remarkably similar patterns of luck, which means the luck stays with one crew for a full year and fundamentally doesn't stay with the other. So last season, it was all Harry Tinknell and Andy Prio, and this year, they can't get a break at all. And it's been the same with the Corvette guys year on year. There's been times when it's been the three car gets all the luck and the four car basically gets hit by meteorites. And then the following season, it swings completely back the other way. It is quite bizarre. And if you look back at the results over recent years, it really is like that. You'll have a team that, you know, a squad that is absolutely there every single week. And the other team just seems to attract not just small misfortune, but massive epoch-making, you know, Thanos in the Avengers type, really, really bad luck. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it is a, a spooky thing. Yeah, but for me, Ford to the WEC, Corvette and IMSA. Not getting on a, on a plane with any of those guys. Let's go to our last fun question here that's going to close the episode, coming from Danny Resser. And Danny, I can't recall if you've sent in questions before. So if this I, is your I first, don't think so. Hello. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. He says, all right, if you could only choose one, what is the most ingenious, illegal, or banned technology you've seen on a race car? Oh, we've had a few, haven't we? I mean, um, the, the ones that spring immediately to mind, and kudos to the likes of Andrew Cotton and Sam Collins at Race Car Engineering, uh, for their investigations into this deformable bodywork and rear aerofoils on WEC cars, Porsche and Toyota stand up and take a bow. Um, and that what this is all about is when the cars were getting up to speed, um, that the bodywork would effectively compress and give it, uh, give it a more slippery uh, profile. And the same with the aerofoil. Uh, so it's effectively active, uh, aerodynamics under load so under the aerodynamic load that it's actually getting it then effectively reforms effectively what you've got is um, flexible bodywork and flexible rear wings i thought that was incredibly ingenious and yes it got banned we have by the way had other stuff that was uh, incredibly ingenious and wasn't banned and that was the the measure that actually brought toyota into the mix in 2014 in the year that they won their first world championship. And that was their definition, their redefinition of what was uh, effectively a rear wing support and what was a wheel extension. And it was a very clever 
uh, interpretation of the regulation, which sportingly uh, Audi uh, acknowledged was clever, did not um, uh, protest and just matched it the following year. But effectively what it gave them was just more aero at that all yeah, that very critical kind of three quarters and rear corner of the car. And it meant that in 2014, they were more or less untouchable. Uh, there's some very clever people in motorsport. And just to extend the point from the, from our general questions earlier, MP, uh, I hope we never get to the stage where we've got regulations that are so restrictive that those clever people don't get to make uh, a difference. I mentioned this one before when this has been asked, I will admit that I'm, I, for whatever reason, I'm brain farting a little bit on the exact details. So if I'm telling it a little bit differently, it's not for dramatic effect. I'm just forgetting a little bit. But one of the ones I was told by one of the engineers on the former Rocket Sports Racing Jaguar GT2 ALMS program, which also visited Le Mans once, I believe, Graham. And that was the, the car was just such a pig. Uh, I don't know what the budget was on it. Uh, I'm sure Rocket Sports did their best. Five, six, five, six dollars, I think. Yes. Uh, I'm sure Rocket Sports did their best. Rocket Sports is also known for being very fond of profits. So uh, who knows how much of the budget was turned into profit. But regardless, I did have one of the engineers tell me a few years later, and this is only what, Graham, 2011, 2012? Yeah, something like that. um, Car was just a pig aerodynamically it wasn't much the one thing it did have was a big old bellowing v8 that could make power and so what the alms tried to do was give it a chance by letting it have more power to compensate for its lack of downforce lack of handling lack of everything still wasn't enough and so one of the engineers told me that one of the quote and i'm using air quotes workarounds (laughs) to the rules was i believe he said it was the brake bias uh, the brake bias adjuster, extend your hand to the dash area. You either cr- rotate the brake bias in left or right to move the brake bias forward, fore or aft. And I don't recall whether he said you could push it and compress it or you could pull it slightly, but it was being used as a dual purpose uh, mechanism and lever system that would push open the back of the airbox to the Jags V8. Keep in mind that it was sipping air or drinking air through air restrictors, dual air restrictors coming in to the airbox. So that is how IMSA controlled and created some sort of parity in GT2. And although they let the V8 in the Jag have some pretty healthy horsepower, uh, the team in certain straight line instances felt like they could use more. And so the engineer told me that, yes, uh, they would indeed just have the drivers, again, whether it was push the, uh, the, the lever, I'm sorry, push the uh, knob or pull the, lot, the knob, it would lift the back of the airbox open, break the seal, um, by and large render the air restrictors absolutely irrelevant, and that motor would drink in all kinds of air and make all kinds of horsepower in limited instances. So not necessarily enough to produce crazy lap times. It was already expected to go quickly in a straight line because it was given that ability by the series. And they would just help themselves to a little bit more through a little bit of airbox trickery. The other one that comes to mind, and this isn't sports car, but I just read about it, which blew my mind, 
was someone talking about how a Formula Ford, I believe it was in the 1980s, there was one driver who they were really, this one driver was talking about struggling to compete against another driver because on the straights, that driver would just absolutely destroy them. And we're talking 115 horsepower on a really good day, Graham, (laughs) out of of a 1.6 liter Kent Ford four-cylinder naturally aspirated engine. 115 horsepower fury uh, on a good day. And how this one driver would just destroy him on the straights, but then he would eat him up in the corners, and, and this back and forth battle went on and on. And later found out that this person was disqualified because they had replaced the extinguishant in the fire extinguisher with nitrous oxide. And (laughs) I'm just saying, it's one thing if you've got, again, let's go back to the Jag. Let's say you've got 600 horsepower V8 and you're monkeying with the airbox to crack it open and get 640. It's a good help. It's not going to radically set off alarm bells, but it's enough to help you uh, in ways where you're deficient. It's another thing when you've got a little tiny poop box open wheel car, barely making a hundred horsepower, and you're forcing freaking nitrous into the thing. You go, what are you thinking? This guy all of a sudden goes from having a Formula Ford to a freaking comparative top fuel dragster on the straights. How do you think that's not going to get noticed? So I just love the balls of that, Graham, where you go, F it. Um, and what you- is the guy thinking? Oh, well, hopefully no one will notice. What do you mean? What do of you mean? Gonna, of course they're going to. I'm going to give you one more because I know we've got to close. Peugeot 908. Um, Nick Renazian showed me around the HDI FAP car. What a fantastic thing that was. And first time I've really had the chance to see in the cockpit, big button that says boost. What's that button, Nick? Ah, he says, that's the button we could use. Uh, you press that button. I think he said it's about an extra 40 horsepower. Um, but they could only use it at night because when you press it, it does indeed give a substantial boost, but then throws lots of smoke out the back so you can only use it when the smoke can't be seen that's ingenuity and uh, that by the way is cheating ah hey if it works it works um all right well i'm marshall pruitt that is graham goodwin this was the week in sports cars starting off the month of may here thank you to cooper tires Thank you to the Justice Brothers, both of whom are incredibly important in making this happen for us. And off we head into a busy stretch, my friends. So we will be back next week uh, once more. If we didn't get your question and you want it answered, please send it in again. I'm sure there will be more questions, new questions coming in about IMSA and all kinds of great stuff. So we will look forward to speaking to you Tuesday or Wednesday next week. 